to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disaster recovery, resilience, crisis management, and anything that can be related to those topics and more. Again, for anyone listening, if there are topics you want us to talk about or you want to talk about, uh, please feel free. Send me an email. Go to the Voice America webpage for the show, and there is a button where you can send the host an email. That's me. I do respond to all emails, and uh, we'll see about getting you on the show or finding someone else to talk about your topic. We also have uh, spots for advertising and sponsorships. Again, just send me an email, and I can send you some information on that. If you've been listening to the show for a long time, you know that I would be attending the Continuity and Resilience Today Conference, CRT, in Toronto in 2019 at, uh, what's the date today, May 29th? And as we did last year, I'd be talking with a lot of the speakers and presenters, and today is no different. Actually, it's kind of a a bit of a celebrity uh, as my guest today, because uh, I've known uh, of this gentleman for a while, but today is the first day that I've actually been able to meet him. So I'd like to welcome to the show the president of the DRA Foundation, Mr. Alan Berman. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. Celebrity, I sort of like that. (laughs) I thought you might. I still have to take out the garbage <laughs> but thank you. So, um, for anyone out there who doesn't know you, because um, we do have people around the globe, can you tell us about yourself, how you got into this, and what you, you're doing? Sure. I'm, uh, I'm actually a techno geek that goes way back um, and helped IBM develop much of its online systems and relational database. And uh, for a long time, I've always wondered what makes businesses tick. Um, Somewhere along the line, I was working for a bank in the 80s, and they really were striving to decentralize their data processing and try to come up with a way of doing recovery and actually built one of the first recovery sites, and I sort of inherited the job. Um, I think I was missing the day the meeting was held, and they (laughs) voted unanimously. Get that. Um, But from there, I continued to work in banking. I'm a former banking CEO and CIO. Um, And some time after that, I actually started a consulting firm to work with organizations to build that. Um, Long story short, several companies later, venture capital, golden parachute, uh, I wound up on the board of directors at DRI International, which is a nonprofit organization which trains and certifies people to deal with natural, man-made, and all of the other inconveniences that we find in business. Um, I became president in 2009, and actually functioned as president until 2017, um, whereupon I decided succession, succession planning is an important part of how we do things. And so I seated my role as president. I'm still the CFO for the corporation, so on the board of directors. But in 2012, we founded the DRI Foundation, uh, which is 
originally was set up to be able to help those people after disasters, and so we funded a lot of recovery efforts. Um, but we decided to expand that, and several years after that, we we created a veterans outreach program, and we decided that it was really important for us to give back and to give to those people who've made the ultimate sacrifice. And so over the last three years, uh, we have worked with military people in the United States and actually in, in England as well to provide them with absolutely free training, free certification, and free job placement. We are currently working with wounded warriors around the United States, uh, Camp Pendleton, which is for Marines and Navy, Fort Sam Houston, which is in Austin, uh, which is in San Antonio, Texas, which is for the Army, and we just came back from the Special Ops Command in Tampa, Florida. But that was our objective: was to give back more and more of it. Um, two years ago, we founded Women in Business Continuity Management to help those people who had, believe it or not, women had special needs, special situations, and that organization has grown to about 450 people, and I. I just finished my meeting before I came here, and so our objective is is to help those organizations, those people, to improve their lives and to try to do something good. So, do you know when DRA actually started? 1988. It was founded. Uh, <clears throat> 1988 is a nonprofit organization, and it's actually chartered in Missouri. Um, and was started by a group of people who were trying to figure out how to make disaster recovery more of a science than an art. Uh, I actually wrote a book in 1987, which really dates me, but <laughs> the objective was to start to move forward. When I came to DRI, I think the thing that was most important for me was to make us a nonprofit. Uh, we were chartered as a nonprofit, and we just didn't function that way. And so our objective was to try to benefit the community and organizations. Uh, we expanded dramatically internationally. We trained in about 100, no, about 65 countries. We teach in 100 companies. We have 15,000 certified professionals, um, which represent about 94 of the Fortune 100 companies. But it really was to create a synergy so that people could take a methodology from place to place. Um, we were stand an ANSI standards development organization, but we decided not to have our own management standard, but to be part of everybody else's. And we've worked with governments around the world. I've worked in Latin America, the United Arab Emirates, in Europe, in the United States, trying to bring this to a science. And I think we've succeeded for the most part. We now have a much more common language, much more common approach to how we deal with those issues. And, and business continuity is, is interesting because it tends to be reactive. Mm -hmm. So we are, if you were, <coughs> event agnostic. We don't care what caused the problem because in the end we have to deal with the results. So we became an effects-based organization. I worked in a research firm before I became head of PricewaterhouseCoopers practice and Marsh's practice. And when I was in the research firm, we found 146 causes of disasters. And trying to deal with those that number alone, let alone the permutations like we saw in Japan in 2011, mm -hmm. tsunami, meltdown, earthquake, um, we decided to take a different approach. And so we took this effects-based approach, and, and what we found out were there were only four effects. It either affected 
a facility, bricks and mortar, um, fire, flood, even pandemics, which prevented people from coming together. In fact, we looked at the operation. So we looked at supply chain. We looked at where personnel were. We looked at disasters that didn't seem to be disasters. So if you worked in an urban area, a transit strike was a disaster because mm -hmm. you couldn't get those resources. We looked at technology and more and more we're looking at technology. We've expanded into cyber and one of the reasons I'm here is to talk about um, the Internet of Things and those kind of devices. And then we looked at the corporations themselves, mergers and acquisitions, uh, things that affected audits, for example, intellectual property. And so we divided the world into four effects and decided how we would plan for those effects. And it, it, at the time we did this, probably 15 years ago, it was a new thought. It was mm -hmm. not what everybody was thinking, but we would bring examples. So we, we talked about the flooding of New Orleans and the fact that it wasn't that the levees broke because of Katrina, it actually was a defect in construction, but, but the analogy was, you know, what if Al-Qaeda had bombed the levees instead? Mm -hmm. Same amount of water would have flowed into New Orleans. It would have had the same disruptive effect. We had to deal with the disruptive effect. And so that's the genesis of how we got to where we are. So you mentioned, uh, I think the number was 65 training um, opportunities, I guess, around the globe. Does that mean there's 65 chapters? We don't have chapters. Oh. We are a nonprofit, non-membership organization, and so there tend to be licensees, but they're all centrally trained by us. Everybody is uh, has to be passed as an instructor by us. There's exams every year for them, um, but it's a much more licensed uh, relationship, except in Canada, where there's much more affiliate relationship because there are almost 2,000 certified professionals in Canada. So that tends to be a little different relationship. We have a similar relationship in London, but for the most part, it's us training people to respond around the world working for their own organizations. Okay, that's why I was asking because I, you know, uh, we're sitting in the room where DRI Canada is going to be having their uh, AGM after, well, almost after we finished talking. So that's why I was wondering, going, well, I haven't seen anything about chapters. So. And we don't, and, and it's, it's why we support membership organizations. So we're mm -hmm. not one, and so we, re we support all of those independent organizations which service networking, uh, thought leadership exchange, and it actually allows us this neutrality in dealing with it. So we're not competing for membership. Uh, we truly are a certification body. So how do you bring all those different uh, global affiliates and everything together to get them all on the same page then? It's interesting. Um, a lot of it has to do with the way we divide the organization. So we had a, have a head of edu education who is really responsible for training instructors and the materials and making sure they're uniform. Um, we actually have an operation that just deals as a liaison to those groups, but it's bringing that consistency. And, it, and it's not as independent as it sounds because it started with companies that were multinational. And they wanted to be able to deliver the same kind of methodology around the world. And so we simply decided that we would find people to train around the world. And I guess for the first few years of my career here, I, I would go around the world about twice a year and um, pile up a lot of miles. 
<laughs> which my children used, I must <laughs> You didn't even get to use them. Um, they, they decided they weren't going to wait to inherit them. They were just going to use them. But it was setting up the training organizations. Um, they meet quarterly so they understand the innovation and how we've changed the materials. Uh, we certify in a number of disciplines, cybersecurity being the most recent one, but, but healthcare and audit and government, um, besides being uh, business continuity. And so they're all trained and they're all, they're all trained to teach a specific um, discipline, if you would. And they have to certify and recertify, and it's, it's, it's a full-time task for us to do that, but it's been very successful because when we talk to organizations, they like the uniformity, so we don't have to fly instructors from here to Malaysia. We have a group in Malaysia who teaches. Um, because we teach in 14 languages, it's really important that we be able to bring that uniformity. So the materials are vetted before they're translated. And the thing that keeps the consistency is, is that only DRA International scores the examinations for certification. So we keep that consistency there. So while they can do the training and and they can administer the exam, only we actually score the exam and that's how we keep the consistency and the understanding that we can train around the world. Do you have a, um, uh, I know other institutions have annual conferences, do, do you guys have one of those where you bring everybody together or like certified members or? Yeah, it started in 2012. Um, we, for a long time we had dealt with, and again we're a non-profit, we had dealt with commercial organizations and supported their conferences and, and one of the things that we found out was those people who had our certification were complaining about seeing the same speakers over and over again. And we looked into it and we realized that if you were a sponsor at any of the any conference, you were automatically given a speech. And so the dissemination of knowledge actually switched over to a sales presentation. And so we decided mm -hmm. in 2012 <coughs> to do it ourselves. And, and ours is a very unique conference. Um, one, it's by invitation only. So there are no white papers, there are no submissions. We simply go out and as we actually have a company that runs our conference called Rock Exhibitions and Mark Rosenstock, who's their CEO, came to me the first when we decided to use them and he said, so what do you think this conference is going to look like? And I just gave him this blank stare. I, went, I have no <laughs> idea. I hired you. And he said, no, no, no. So give us a theme. What do you think? And I said, well, if I was going to go out and share a beer with a bunch of colleagues, these are the people I would invite to go out drinking. Um, and that became the theme. Who was the most preeminent person? So people who speak at our conference speak almost nowhere else. Um, we built our conference differently because sponsors didn't get a speech. They were sort of reluctant to come to the conference. Um, and so we built it on attendees. And the first conference had 250 attendees. From last year in Las Vegas, we had 650. But the number of paid attendees is greater than any other conference. And all of a sudden they realized that, I think the exhibitors and sponsors realized that 85% of those people come with budgets because we encourage senior people to come and have senior discussions. Uh, our keynote speakers tend to be from Department of Defense, NSA, large corporations, and again, very unique 
the speakers. And, uh, and so that's how we built our conference. And we built it differently. We're a nonprofit. So our conference actually starts on Sunday, but on Saturday is Volunteer Day. And so we go out and we volunteer to work to build houses, to clean up, to clean up uh, offices. Um, so I'll give you an idea. We've had the last three conferences, the mayor of the city in which they were hosted has declared a DRI Foundation Day. And they've really promoted what we do uh, by the Tuesday night we have a formal awards dinner. Uh, so we go from jeans and sneakers to tuxedos and, and gowns. The men wear tuxedos, the women wear gowns. <laughs> Actually, a formal dinner was the women's idea, not the men's, but uh, it's okay. Um, but no, it's just a different conference. So, and every conference start every dinner, the gala dinner with the award ceremony, starts off by having a military procession. Uh, mm. from the nearby base and we do a lot of work with veterans and they've supported us so it's a, just a different thing and what people have found out is the people who speak there have no commercial interest in this um, we're not we you can't buy your way into a speech it is simply by station only and it's really drawn some very senior people so not only do we get business continuity people we get CEOs and CFOs and CIOs because the theme is really moved to resilience mm -hmm. and overall organizational resilience and so right. whether it's safety or disasters or in fact it's the amalgamation of risk uh, from franchise risk to currency risk to operational risk, they all come together to talk about what their organizations do, and that sharing is the best part of the conference. Well, it makes a difference because you you did bring up the point of uh, speeches that became sale pitches, and then your, um, in my opinion, and I'm not knocking anybody, uh, sometimes those speeches felt like they were trying to direct you to a certain uh, point of mind and a certain viewpoint, and you know the world it, it's larger than just a single viewpoint. So those kind of speeches sometimes really turned me off. You know, so it's good to hear that, uh, you know, how you're managing yours. Well, I worked for comments. two of the largest consulting firms in the world, and our presentations were sales speeches. I mean, there was no doubt that we were trying to bring forth our point of view. I think the yeah. fact that we are so neutral uh, has really been, when we look at the reviews of what people say about the conference, they talk about it being unique, and it's non-commercial, and, and, you know, from the volunteer day through military processions, it just has a different feel. Well, on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. Uh, we're talking today with Alan Berman, the president of DRI Foundation, and we will be right back from the CRT conference in Toronto. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected and we're back at the CRT conference. Today we're talking with Alan Berman. Al, your presentation, I believe it's tomorrow you're doing it, you're talking about cyber threats and cybersecurity. Can you tell us what that is and you know what it entails and for our listeners out here? I think if you think about cybersecurity and it's it's part of the historical background. Until 2014, we didn't even think about it. And then Target came. And this big issue of compromising people's credit card information. And, and then we saw it proliferate. And so we saw it go from Target to Lowe's to Sony. And right as we speak today, nobody is surprised that somebody gets hacked. Facebook gets hacked. We we take it for granted. In fact, it's probably this almost indifference to it that's caused much of the problems. We're no longer as vigilant as we were about fire and theft and those things. We've lost interest because we truly have no downside. In truth, there is a downside to theft because it increases credit card fees, which get back, back to the retailer, which get back past customer. But as long as we don't have a vested interest, there's no direct impact. We tend to ignore it. I, in fact, I ask people all the time, how many of you receive new credit cards? And three people raise their hands and you go, you don't think it was because there's a new design. Hacking has become an enterprise and whether it's three trillion dollars or five trillion dollars is it's almost irrelevant at this point it has become gone from what used to be called cyber joyriders who used to hack companies and post it on a bulletin board just to show how good they were to it really being one of a huge industry um i did an analysis some time ago about what happens after you get it hacked and the pricing model they use and the quality control and the distribution methodology is the envy of most companies. Um, we've seen ransomware, but cyber is an unauthorized intrusion to your system, whether it's for the theft of information and the resale of that information, or when we see with ransomware, the dis destruction of it. 
Um, it has become a problem that is has every company on edge. I was talking about we didn't see it in 1914. Capital Alliance does this uh, risk barometer, and it never showed up until 2014. It's 2019, it's now the number one concern, but it's taken five years to get there. And I think a lot of it is because we take it for granted. We just know it's going to happen. It's not when you're going to get hacked. It, it's sort of like earthquakes. It's mm -hmm. not it's not if, it's when, and we know that to be true. And so we've had to come up with a different approach to it. it very much like business continuity started out, um, it started out in technology. We're seeing the same yeah. thing, but it's not, it's not a technological issue alone. So we've sort of drawn this parallel between risk management, which is the prevention of an incident occurring, and business continuity, which is the mitigation of the impact or the consequence. And so we've started to look at cybersecurity itself as being risk management. How do I prevent it from happening? And then something called cyber resilience to how do I reduce the impact? And that slowly has caused an evolution of combining business continuity and cybersecurity and cyber resilience under an umbrella that says it's an interruption. And how do we handle the consequences of the interruption? The problem is, is a study was just done by uh, IBM. The mean time to discover an incident in cyber is 168 days. So it's like having a building on fire for five and a half months and nobody has noticed. Nobody knows the fire. And so by the time you hit, by the time it happens, we just saw this issue with uh, Starwoods and Marriott. And Starwoods was hacked three years ago. Marriott, as part of its conversion, found this. But it had taken place three years ago and people were stealing passports and credit card and all that information. So it's a different animal. So the discovery and the risk piece of that is totally different than anything we've seen. On the other hand, the reaction to it and the mitigation is pretty much within the wheelhouse of what business continuity people do. And so that's what we're trying to deal with. And, and while it's good to deal with those issues that we understand, you know, hacking of data centers and server farms, we then wound up talking about mobile devices, which industry has created a problem for itself. It bring your own device as cost corporations undue harm. There's no control over the device. The devices are easily intercepted. It leads, it leads those hackers into the network. So we look at the real cause of, when we look at causal, it's phishing, sending out emails and they're prolific um, to the point that we can now hack mobile devices. And if we don't hack mobile devices, we can hack things called the Internet of Things. All the things like um, remotely turning on your lights, your garage door opener, starting your car, and those things from about 26 billion devices. So there are four devices for every human being on the face of this planet. There are 50 Yikes. billion, if you believe in, you know, <coughs> between computers and, and mobile devices and smartphones and watches and those things. So you, got, you even mentioned, uh, I think it's uh, refrigerators. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, especially because I can never find my shopping list. And so <laughs> all I do is I go to my phone and it shows me what's inside my refrigerator. And that's sitting on my network, and so I'm able to see what's there and then decide what to shop. But at the same time, people can hack into those things, make them do, well, two things happen. You can either hack a device, 
and make it do what it was intended to do, but more in a malevolent way, or you can make it do something else. And with, so for example, refrigerators, where you were able to get on the network, look inside your refrigerator, see what's wrong. Well, you can also hack it so that the bots, the automated communication between devices can now flood networks. And so you get this big denial of service. So you've got a refrigerator, which is really convenient, and all of a sudden it becomes something else. Um, that's true with medical equipment. And being, being of the age of James Bond, we start to look at how to do interesting things. Literally, you can take an anesthesiologist who's sitting on a network and has already programmed in dosage and change that dosage and kill somebody remotely. There are just things we can do with devices, and, and they're so prevalent and omnipresent. I mean, they're in everybody's workplace that we now have to find another defense. And if that doesn't work, we now have fake USB ports in airports, which actually bring in malware into your mobile device so that it can spread back to your network. So we're dealing with something we've never understood before, um, and we've, it's been commercialized. So when you're seeing some of the ransomware that goes on, the so model. Can you explain what ransomware is sure. for anybody who might not yeah, know? Yeah, there's actually two forms of ransomware. One is, is that you encrypt the data on somebody's device so they can no longer use it. And we have seen that in, we're seeing it in Baltimore two weeks ago, where the city of Baltimore can no longer respond. We've seen it in corporations. And the interesting thing is it's a commercial enterprise. So what will happen is they will encrypt the data and for some fee paid in bitcoins. They will unencrypt the data for you, give you the key and give you the data and go merrily on their way. And it tends to be a relatively insignificant amount to most organizations, unless they decide that they really don't want to do it. So the city of Atlanta, the ransom I think was $55,000. They refused to do it, it cost them $20 million and three and a half months to fix it. Baltimore is facing the same problem. Um, there are smaller organizations, I think it's a hospital in Alabama, Leeds, um, and they wanted $50,000 and they negotiated them down to $8,000. So, you know, you can pay, you can negotiate, or you can try to fix the problem. The issue is that this is not a group of individuals. This is a group of individuals who are renting software, NSA software, which has been stolen, and they are sending out bots all over and paying back a commission to the people who sold them the software. So who's doing all that? Almost anybody. If you want to go to the dark web, you can probably buy it. Really? You can buy almost anything you want. Um, and the law enforcement agencies are doing a really good job of trying to do it. But think about the fact that somebody sitting in the Ukraine is actually hacking Atlanta, for example. There's no way to control it because we've run out of borders. There are no more borders. You get on the internet, you can go where you want. You can buy tools to do this so you don't have to do it at all. In fact, the, the picture of hackers sitting in front, front of a lot of computers doing it is really not the picture that we really see. We the, see this the, just the pure person, automation. The person sitting in the basement eating a bag yeah, of Yeah, it doesn't, chips, uh, those, not the guy. Like the old the movies, guy. yeah. And, if, and we face this problem of you know, governments doing this um, and not being able to figure out where it is. So I think we're facing this huge problem of one, we can't identify when it happened. And that's becoming frightening. 
Um, two is it's taking us a long time to fix the problem, and I think it's becoming more. The other thing that's happening recently is something called doxing, where ransomware is actually being asked of you because they've hacked your phone, they've stolen everything on your phone, and have said that they will make it public unless you pay them. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anybody who has something on their phone that they don't regret. It's a bad message, it's a picture, it's something. And so they've spread this thing. And, and I think last year, in 2017, I think the statistic was 1,500 major companies were subject to ransomware. It's now 10 times that. And we're seeing it every day. And, and you know, I've, I've had people call me and say what to do, and I said, pay them. I said, the only thing that you know about them, it's, it's hard to believe, is that for the most part, they're honorable. You pay them the money, it's almost guaranteed it will never happen to you again. But you look really? at, you know, you looked at Baltimore, <coughs> and they've hacked only 13 sets of servers. They haven't even hacked the whole thing. Um, and now you've got, all, you've got governments trying to figure out how they deal with um, health, and safety and security and environment, HSSE, to, pre to preserve the services that they're providing for their uh, constituency, not to mention the financial and administrative work that goes on that supports government. So it's a really a very complex thing. You know, do you have the 9-11 covered and emergency vehicles? And a lot of organizations have figured, I can back those up. And then it doesn't work because you can't mm -hmm. throw enough people and enough time and too much conflict. And so governments are making hard decisions. But you know, my advice to people has always been, if you need it now, pay them. Ransomware is one of those things where the incident takes place at the time you know it's taking place, unlike all of the other incidents. It's already like happened, it, right? It's happened, and they know it, and you know, it's, it's, it's bank robbery without any risk. Nobody has to be there. You don't have to be close. Um, there are really no physical injuries, but it's, it's of concern, and when you talk to governments and, and you talk to people around, it's a huge concern. And it's always reactive. You're reacting to the last virus. Is cyber threats and cyber crime more organized crime? Just another word for it now? Oh, absolutely. This is not a bunch of people, as you said, sitting in their garage trying to do this. Um, this is governments doing it. It's organized crime doing it. There's, give you an example of the business model. There is a sharing of information, data warehousing between cyber thieves who now can build a full profile of you. And that profile is important in determining the value of the information they stole. So, mm -hmm. for example, if they steal your credit card, one of the things that they want to do is look at your credit card history. So if they see that you're making a lot of purchases at Home Depot, they will do, they will do the same thing. They will buy from Home Depot using your card, put it up on eBay and sell it. You won't even notice it. And so this profile that they've developed of you, buying habits, um, credit limits, what your patterns are become very important. And, and we don't react well to that. So mm -hmm. for example, if, I don't know where you are, in the United States. It's interesting, the United States, and I say this with due respect, is the only country in the world that I've been to where when you sit in a restaurant, your credit card leaves your site. How's that? The waiter takes it, 
swipes the machine there. If I'm sitting in Canada, for example, they bring the machine to me. I never lose well, sight true, of my yeah. credit card. That's yeah. true for the most part around the world. Um, and so the United States just has not gotten there. And I've never understood why. We're seeing it in some restaurant chains now. Well, I, I used to be in that industry, and I do remember the days where we would take the, uh, the credit card, go in the back, and the old, um, now I'm dating myself, ChargeX machines, you know, where you put the carbon paper down and <laughs> across the card. And <laughs> it was worse than that because what would happen now is then chips have taken a little bit out of this. This person would have two swipe machines in the back. He would swipe the one to charge a credit card. He would also swipe another one, which would go to an accessory, and he would have mm -hmm. all that information while he was sitting. I, uh, a long time ago, not that long ago, I worked with the FBI. They found out that the company I was working for had the huge amount of credit card theft. And we figured out the pattern was, it was the car, it was the, uh, car service. This person would swipe it twice, but only if you were going to the airport. Oh, really? And so yeah. as soon as you got to the airport, they knew you were going to be on a plane for three or four hours, and they had three or four hours to do it. Um, it's a pattern that's happened in the United States. So hmm. about five years ago, if you went with a credit card to a gas station, you now have to put in your zip code. Yes, actually, uh, I had that. I was on the way to New York with my uh, brother uh, for a concert for my birthday, and we had a heck of a time because our postal codes aren't the same as yours. So we're going, what do we do here? How can we get gas? And the reason for that is if you stole a credit card, the first thing you would do was go to a gas station and you would try to pump gas. If it was rejected, you threw the credit card away and left. No cameras, mm. nothing. If it was accepted, the next thing you would do is go to every electronic store you could find and buy whatever you could because it was easy sellable. Yeah. And so we've, we've Band-Aid is hardly the word, and so that's become our security. But hmm. it's more and more, and it took 15 years for us to figure out that. that. Wow. Um, and I think it's the idea of, you know, we just don't have real preventative things. So even when we put in chips, the idea was to use the chip in a pin, but the pin was too mm -hmm. inconvenient. In fact, people think that waiting four seconds longer for a chip to process is <laughs> way too long and then the swipe and then I've got something to do with my four seconds. We just can't get a preventative process in. Um, our biggest preventative process is, is our own vigilance. So for most of my credit cards, if there is a charge made, I get a record of it. Yeah, um, yeah, and I've heard people say, "Well, that's just too annoying," and I sort of like the idea that I have. Well, to let's get into that, that in our next uh, segment because I think that the prevention and response is uh, a good topic for our last segment. We're talking with uh, Alan Berman, president of the DRI Foundation. We're talking about cybersecurity at the CRT conference here in Toronto. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And we're back here at the CRT conference here in Toronto. We're talking with Alan Berman about cybersecurity. Al, before, uh, just as we went away on our second break there, um, you started to get into some prevention uh, measures. Let's talk about that now. What can organizations and individuals do you know, with uh, some of these uh, cyber threats that are out there? Let's talk about individuals first because I think it's, it's, it's easier. There are easy things to do and there are hard things to do. So let's talk about the easy things to do. Um, we know that some of the major hacks, um, not Petya and those things, were done because we were using outdated software. So updating your software on a regular basis is, is, is really important. Not using old operating systems is important. Making sure, because more and more of the patches we get, the updates we get, have to do with security. And we should maintain that. Um, it's another thing that's inconvenient. I've got to put my iPhone on hold for five minutes while it does it. But it's an important thing to do. Um, and we can do that. Um, having Better passwords is really important. So if your password is one two three four, or your password is Star Wars, or, or password, or password, <laughs> uh, it's not so silly. Uh, there's an incident with Equifax, um, and and the hack was done. But as we went looking internationally, there was a country that was um, actually an Equifax facility when the when the admin. When the admin who actually monitors the system and installs the security, well, the admin's ID was admin and the password was admin. It's really just oh. too lazy to change it. It didn't help my credit score, I can tell you that after I mentioned it. Uh, <laughs> but no, it, it's, we just don't do those things. Uh, this is this really funny incident with Kanye West at the White House. And he unlocked his phone by hitting zero, 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 zero. And there was a reporter standing there with a camera with a video showing it. And so we tend to be lazy about that. Um, 
And I understand it to, to a large extent. I looked the other day, I have 353 passwords. It's hard to have unique Ooh. passwords, but the monitoring of it's important. If something looks wrong, um, it is wrong. Uh, having a monitoring service, um, look at what the issues are. I have one on my credit card, my, my primary credit card, and I get notices periodically if somebody tried to do it. If, if it's happening with Uber, if you get it, and I, almost everybody gets this, they send you out a, a passcode for Uber, and it's somebody trying to mirror your account. Oh, wow. And so if you're getting those, everybody is, it's somebody trying to do it. The good news is it's a, it's connected to your phone, and if, without them knowing what the phone number is, they can't um, intercept that code. But it's become more common. I don't think a week goes by it doesn't happen on Uber. And well, I, I know that um, some of the banks here in Canada have that. You can set yourself up any activity on your account and you get notified on. Oh, I, I know I do on uh, a couple of things as well. Uh, you know, after, believe it or not, after your presentation last year. Here, right? I did it. So. <laughs> well, somebody listened. <laughs> but but it, it's really common sense thing. The other thing is we have outdated routers and we have outdated uh, software on those. In fact, there was a uh, there was a virus sent by a government, and the FBI was telling people reboot your router. It's a terrible thing to do, and so we've started to understand that there was basic ways of doing this that we could just prevent a lot of these things from happening. You know. If my car's burning oil, I take it to the shop. I want to make sure it's running, mm -hmm. and we need to do the same things. And it's not difficult, but we've gotten used to instant gratification. And so anything that takes more than 12 seconds is, is intolerable. It's, it's I, true, it, yeah. It really yeah. is. I mean, well, the difference between people swiping their credit card and the chip is five seconds. And you can't believe how many people are doing this while they're waiting for the credit card to be accepted, but it's more difficult now because there's more information on it. So we've learned to do some of those things. Um, being aware of situations, so for example, networks are easily hacked. There was this, there was this issue of um, the Republican National Convention when it was in New York. There was an organization, just to see how secure it was, actually created fake web addresses and they were intercepting everybody's message because they were using free Wi-Fi and they published the results. Um, governments have used something called the Stingray, which is a portable tower and what it does is allow them to intercept everything that's coming from your phone and then relaying it to a tower and so we need an awareness of that. Uh, recently, governments admitted there's a piece of software called Pegasus where they can actually monitor everything that's going on in your phone. I think the FBI um, Apple issue with San Bernardino where they found the phone of one of the people who was involved in the incident and they wanted Apple to open it up for them. Oh yes, And yeah, Apple yeah. refused to do it and they finally found somebody who figured out a way to hack it. Well, Apple changed them, the makeup of their new, I think from the iPhone 8 on, that once your phone is locked, that data port is inoperable. So you can plug into it, you can't get any of the data until you put in your passcode. So Apple is trying to deal with this issue of public need 
to prevent crime and to react to crime versus privacy. And it's an interesting issue of, you know, I, you hear this from people all the time. They go, well, I have nothing to hide. Well, we all have something to hide. And I don't want anybody listening to my conversation. Mm -hmm. And yet I recognize the need for authorities to do this. Um, and we're seeing governments get involved in this. So the general data prote protection regulations in the UK have come out to say you can become invisible. You have to be able to remove people's IDs. And this issue of privacy and security becoming, it's, it's filtered down to state level in, in the United States. California has one that goes into effect next year, which says all Internet of Things devices have to meet a standard of security. And so they're trying to prevent it. Um, the dramatic effects of hijacking a Jeep at 70 miles per hour is a scary sight and, and certainly got a response from Congress who had never had any real interest in, in finding this protection. So states are working on it, federal governments are working on it, but we're always in a reactive mode. And so one of the things we've started to talk to organizations about it, and the National Institute for Science and Technology, NIST, which, which has come up with some maturity models, has talked about how do we bring cyber into the world of continuity and resilience. And so we built this analogy of risk management is to business continuity, cause versus effect. And cybersecurity deals with the cause and cyber resilience deals with the effect. And so we're building a model that starts with identification and then deals with understanding what the incident has occurred and how do we recover and how do we get back to normal. And it's become what we hope will be the next standard in doing this over the next 10 years so that we'll be able to at least mitigate the results. I think that trying to prevent cyber, uh, cyber attacks is not possible. Uh, it's too profitable, it's too easy, it's almost, you know, the number of uh, cyber criminals who get prosecuted is minuscule. Mm -hmm. um, especially now that we're automating the process, so they worry about artificial intelligence. But criminals are dealing with artificial intelligence as, as well as we are. And so there's a sense of frustration. We just don't understand how. And I have to do this presentation tomorrow night. By the time I'm three quarters away from it, people are starting to turn their phones off. And you know, <laughs> here we get to this paranoia, and I'm saying, all you have to do is be vigilant. I said, I, I realize that you have no risk. Uh, identity theft, while consequential, is not the norm. Data theft is the norm. And then trying to do that, but you have really no risk involved in it, so you don't deal with it. I had an interesting thing. I, I'm very sensitive about my data, and I was looking at uh, my American Express bill, and I saw that somebody had booked a flight to Switzerland. And it was, the flight was going to take off in two days, and so I called American Express and said, hi, you can catch him at the gate. And it we took off the charge and we went merrily on our way. But it's only because the numbers are so great. Uh, you think about the fact there are 50 billion devices sitting out there, all of which are hackable, which will get you to networks, which will get you to other devices. And I also tell people, you know, it, it's something we're learning to live with. Um, I know people who I have a neighbor. He won't hear this, so it's okay. <laughs> and he's very paranoid about this, so he keeps all his passwords on a machine that doesn't have a motive. It's not connected to anything. 
And so he feels really secure. And then one day he called and knocked on the door and he said, I got a problem, Al. And I go, really? He says, you know something about computers. I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I forgot my password. <laughs> and everything I own is there. So I said, well, can I have your machine? And he goes, yeah, yeah. Ten minutes later, I came back across and I gave him his machine. And I said, here's your password. Change it, please. And he said, how did you do that? And I said, I got a piece of software that brute forces goes through and cracks passwords. Um, and he said, really? And I said, yeah, it used to be $150, but competition has driven the price down to 50 bucks. so if you want it, please have it. Um, we've gotten into that period where we have very little defense against it. So you can't imagine a world that doesn't exist on a network. And, and mm. we live with that kind of world. <clears throat> we have two minutes left, believe it or not. I told you it goes by fast. Very fast. Do you uh, give you one minute, one and a half minutes? Do you have any final thoughts on what we need to do uh, on cyber? Yeah, I, I think we, we need to be aware of fact that we're bringing the threat, and I'll talk from a business point of view, that we're bringing the threat to work. Bring your own devices. There's Most people don't have software on their mobile devices. Um, they're not aware of the fact they're bringing their Apple Watch or they're bringing their Fitbit to work is another way of attack. Organizations, on the other hand, have to come up with more stringent policies. The policies are extremely weak around what people can do with bring your own devices. And so they need to create what they did a long time ago when they started having computers and they were worried about people stealing them. We need to come up with a consistency. I, I'm hoping NIST brings some of that to it, but I still can sit there and I just got off the phone with a very good friend. He said, I still can't bring the idea to my organization that we're under attack. And hmm. I think this awareness hopefully will help. And I think people should know that they can reduce this. It's very much like putting the sign on my mailbox that says I have an alarm system. And I do, by the way. It's not fake. People will go to the path of least resistance, the low-hanging yeah. fruit. So if you have an easy-to-break password, they're going to come after you. If you have no security, if you're not using virtual private networks to hide your identity, people will come after you. My advice is make it difficult on the thief. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I know there are tools out there the company used to monitor when attacks occur because I used to be in a group security and business continuity at a, at a company. So when there's a security incident or some sort of intrusion or attacks, you know, that group was up <laughs> and they were, they were doing things because they had all the tools that told them, oh, something's happening right now, just started two seconds ago, you know, and you know, you got to have those tools in, in place as well. Yeah, it's become more complex. Uh, there was a university yep. that was taken down by, <coughs> by a bunch of vending machines that they had plugged into their network. And one of my advice to companies is we all have vending machines, plug, plug them into a separate plain old telephone line. Pay yeah. the fee for it so it's not on your network so you don't have this monitoring. But I think we're, the awareness is there. Nobody has to talk about cybersecurity and right. talking about having a discipline to make it more difficult. Well, on that, we've come to the end of the show. Al, thank you very much for joining us. And hopefully nobody out there has a uh, heart attack about their refrigerator or anything like that. Um, but uh, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your time. And everybody out there, and stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. 
Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.